podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. I have only two parts for you today. In part one, I'll review our 3-2 loss to Spartak Moscow in the Europa League on Thursday. And in part two, I'll preview our big match against Fiorentina on Sunday. So let's start with the match against Spartak Moscow. We suffered our first loss of the season by a final score of 3-2. Elif Elmas opened the scoring only 11 seconds into the match, which was the fastest goal in the history of the tournament. Napoli were in complete control. Spartak looked shaken by the early goal. But despite the very strong first quarter, we weren't able to take advantage. And just before the half hour mark, Mario Rui was shown a straight red for a tackle on Victor Moses. That obviously changed the complexion of the match. Even though we looked a little all over the place, we managed to hold Spartak off for the balance of the half. Ironically, after Napoli had the chance to reorganize at the break, Spartak looked much the better side. They pushed forward and found the equalizer through Quincy Promise in the 54th minute. After a tense 25 minutes, substitute Mikhail Ignatov put Spartak ahead in the 80th minute. Only two minutes later, Maximiliano Cafriez picked up a deserved second yellow. He was harassing Victor Osman all half. So we had eight minutes plus stoppage time to find an equalizer 10v10. But it was Spartak who scored next. Promis scored his second of the night. And that pretty much sealed the victory. Osman scored in stoppage time to extend his goal scoring streak. He has now scored in five consecutive matches in all competitions, accumulating seven goals in the process. This was a frustrating match, both for the fans and the players. There is a lot to discuss, the officiating, Spalletti's decisions, the goals, and what this means for us going forward. We'll talk about all of that in this review, but first, let's get to the starting lineups. Rui Vitoria started the exact lineup we were expecting, at least in terms of personnel. On paper, they were lined up in a 3-5-2 but they typically play in a 3-4-3 or a 3-4-1-2, which are all really variations of the same thing. Alexander Maximenko started in goal. Giorgio Jigia, Samuel Guijo, and Maximiliano Cafria started as the back three. Ruslan Litvinov and Neil Umyarov started in the center of the midfield. Ayrton started on the left side of the midfield, and Victor Moses started on the right side of the midfield. Finally, Selim Khan Bakayev started as the trequartista in behind Quincy Promes and Ezekiel Ponce. Luciano Spalletti made four changes to the squad that he fielded against Cagliari. It was a completely different squad than I was expecting. He lined up in a 4-3-3 with Alex Meret, making his first start since injuring his back against Genoa. That was one of the changes, Meret over Ospina. Costas Manolas started over Amir Rachmani at centre-back next to Kalidou Koulibaly. The fullbacks didn't change from the Cagliari match with Mario Rui on the left and Giovanni Di Lorenzo on the right. I was expecting to see Di Lorenzo move over to left back and for Kevin Malqui to start at right back. Fabian Ruiz started as the regista in behind Elif Almas and Piotr Zielinski. That was the third change with Almas starting over Anguissa. I expected to see Almas but I thought Fabian would rest and Anguissa would start. Up top, Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Matteo Politano started again on the right wing. 
I was expecting to see Chucky Lozano start there since Politano played at the weekend. And finally, Andrea Pitania started over Victor Osiman at striker, which was also a surprise to me. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. I think we have to start with the red card. In real time, I thought this was a bit of a harsh decision. There seemed to be a genuine attempt to play the ball, and I don't think there was any intent to injure. But as I've said time and time again, it's not really about intent. And when I saw the replay during the VAR review, you see quite clearly that Mario Rui catches Victor Moses with his studs up. I do think Rui was a little unfortunate in the sense that it was a bit of a bang-bang play where Moses nicked in just before Mario Rui got there, and at that point he couldn't avoid the foul, but you simply cannot go into a tackle with your studs up like that. Even if you're genuinely playing the ball, you're taking a big risk anytime you go into a tackle with your studs up. And in this case, the gamble just wasn't warranted considering where the tackle was made on the pitch. Mario Rui easily could have played off the ball and defended Moses straight up. Now, as has been the case for some time now, consistency amongst match officials remains a big issue. Our friend Mo Salad posted on Twitter questioning how Kevin De Bruyne can get away with a yellow card for his tackle on Idrissa Guy in the Man City PSG match. If you didn't see that game, De Bruyne lunged in a similar fashion to how Mario Rui did. Guy got to the ball first and De Bruyne stomped with full studs on the inside of his leg. This tackle was far worse than the Mario Rui one in my opinion. That said, I think De Bruyne fully deserved a red card and just got away with it perhaps because of his name or because of the magnitude of that match. Whatever the reason, that was just poor officiating in the City PSG match and doesn't mean it was wrong to give Mario Rui a red. Then there was the tackle by Ponce on Manolas in the 42nd minute, which saw the entire Napoli bench jump up on their feet looking for retribution. Ponce was upright but also got there late with his studs up. I've seen reds given for this type of tackle, but if I'm being honest, I didn't agree with the previous ones either. For me, there's a key difference between this tackle and the Mario Rui one. On the red card, Mario Rui arrives late and he catches Moses. With this foul, it wasn't so much that Ponce arrived late and caught Manolas, as much as it was Manolas getting caught on the follow-through of his clearance. In other words, Manolas basically kicked the underside of Ponce's foot. For me, the more egregious tackle was the one made by Cafriez on Osimhen in the 65th minute, which earned him his first yellow card. Now, I know that's a professional foul and therefore a yellow card is warranted, but I think there needs to be a distinction between a professional foul where you grab a player's shirt to stop their run and a professional foul where you completely take out a player's legs. In the former, it's highly unlikely that you'll cause an injury by pulling a player's shirt. The opposite is true of the latter, especially with the scissor-like tackle that Kafriya's made on Osimhen. That's one of those plays where I feel the punishment was based on the outcome. What I mean by that is perhaps Kafriya's would have been sent off had Osimhen got hurt, but because he didn't, thankfully, only a yellow was given. So we were faced with the prospect of playing a full hour of this match down a man. Of course, at the time, we didn't know that Kafriya's would pick up a second yellow in the 82nd minute. So Spalletti had to make some changes, which is what I want to talk about next. The first thing he did was move Di Lorenzo over to the left and shift Elmas of all people to right back, but to his credit, I thought he fared well enough there. I think the red card hurt Di Lorenzo more than any other player in this match. I thought he played really well in the first half hour of the match. He was getting forward, overlapping Politano and creating chances, 
but being down a man, he wasn't able to get forward anymore, and while I think he's more than capable of playing on both sides of the pitch, I also think he's far more effective on the right. The second change Spalletti made was to take off Insigne and replace him with Kevin Malqui. I had a chat with some of our previous guests, Gianluca and Joey, on this subject. The question was, why Insigne? My take was that when a defender gets a red, it's pretty standard to remove an attacking player, and of the three, Insigne seemed to make the most sense. We have two starting right-wingers, three if you include Unas, so you might as well leave Politano out there and save Lozano for Fiorentina. Petania is already a backup, so that just leaves Insigne, who I figured was not going to play the full match anyways. In fact, Spalletti confirmed that after the match, he said the plan was to only play Insigne for 60-70 to 70 minutes, so it made sense to take him out earlier. Now, to Joey's point, if you are already planning on removing him in the 60th minute, why not leave him in until then, remove another player like Petania, or as Gianluca suggested, maybe even remove Elmas, then take out Insigne later and replace him with Osimen. I think that's perfectly logical. Insigne is always one of our better players. Patania was getting into good areas to shoot, but that seemed to change after the red card. Personally, I wouldn't have removed Elmas only because he has legs, which were already short on in the midfield, and he likely wouldn't start against Fiorentina anyway. I think it was quite clear that Spalletti's decisions, both in terms of who he took off and who he didn't, were motivated by the upcoming Fiorentina match. Politano and Elmas played 73 and 82 minutes respectively, which suggests that neither of them will start against Fiorentina. The same goes for Manolas, who played the full 90. Zielinski only played the first half. He was replaced by Frank Zambo and Gisa in the second half, and Osman only played the second half as well. Based on those changes, I think you could rather easily predict our starting 11 for the Fiorentina match, which I'll do in part 2. But these changes were also tactical in nature. I think Spalletti's plan was basically to protect the lead in the second half and hopefully catch Spartak on the counter. Angis is much better suited to protecting a lead than Zielinski is. And the reason you bring Osman on is because when you're sitting back and defending, you're likely going to play the ball long. So you want the pace of Osman and you'd probably bet on him to score in those 1v1 or even those 1v2 situations where you simply boot it long and let him chase. For me, the problem was that we sat back a little too deep. At times, it seemed we had Osman alone around midfield, and the other eight outfield players were all around the box, and that made it too easy for Spartak to push forward and create chances. That's a good segue to the goal, so let's break them down. For me, the first goal was a combination of a great play by Victor Moses and a couple of fortunate bounces. Moses ran straight past Politano on the wing before cutting the ball back. It seemed to bounce around before it fell to Quincy Promise, and then his shot deflected off Koulibaly and in. Even though Promise scored a brace, I thought Moses was Spartak's best player. He was causing all kinds of problems on the right wing, so much so that in the second half, Spalletti moved Di Lorenzo back to right back and played Malqui at left back. Spalletti did that to take advantage of Malqui's pace, and I thought that worked quite well. I thought the second goal was the result of poor defending all around. Di Lorenzo, Anguisa, and Fabian all chased Promise on the ball, which left a huge gap in the midfield. I thought Lozano was playing too high up the pitch, almost as if he had forgotten that we were down a man, and then he didn't follow the run of Ayrton. Elmas was jogging back a little too casually for me in the midfield, though he probably thought his center backs would step up. Unfortunately, they did not. I think Koulibaly and Manolas were both too far off the men when that ball was played in, but we do have to give substitute Ignatov credit for the shot. I mentioned in my preview that Spartak loved to shoot from the top of the box, and that's exactly what we saw there. 
Finally, the third goal came from a rare mistake from Koulibaly, who just took too long on the ball to clear it out, and that clearance was blocked by Sobolev. Umyarov made a great run to get past Fabian, and then also Koulibaly, who dove in desperately trying to atone for his mistake. That left Sobolev wide open. He was also played onside by Di Lorenzo, and then it was an easy tap-in for Promes. In my preview, I said we'd have to take all opponents seriously. After the match, Koulibaly told Sky Sport that in his opinion, they were thinking about Sunday's match, which was wrong. He said if they play with their heads elsewhere, then they will have problems. Maybe that was the issue, but it didn't seem like that to me before the red card. I'll close the review with some final thoughts on what this means going forward. With Leicester losing 1-0 to Legia Warsaw, we find ourselves tied bottom of the table in Group C. Legia are top of the table on 6 points, followed by Spartak on 3 points. I probably should have explained this before the start of the tournament, but for those who don't know, the format of the Europa League changed with the creation of the Conference League. Under the new format, there is no longer a round of 32. The winners of each group advance straight to the round of 16. The runners-up in each group play in a preliminary round against the 8 third-place teams from the Champions League, to determine who the other 8 teams will be that play in the round of 16. Finally, the 3rd place teams in the Europa League drop into the Conference League, so it's really important to win the group simply because it means you will play fewer games. We might have to win our next 4 games to achieve that depending on the other results. I think 2nd in the group is certainly very attainable, so I'm not hitting the panic button just yet. And quite frankly, I wouldn't be all that fussed if we didn't advance either. The worst thing that could happen is we finish 3rd in the group, still have to play games, but it's in the Conference League. My position on this hasn't changed much from last season. Finishing in the top 4 in Serie A has to be the top priority. The longer we stay in the Europa League, the more difficult it will be to finish top 4. Now, if we don't amass the injuries that we did last season, I think we're deep enough to compete on both fronts, but I was happy to see Spalletti rotate and make changes at the half, because that tells me he's thinking about Serie A. That will do for part 1, in part 2 we'll preview our match against Fiorentina. Next, let's preview our match against Fiorentina on Sunday. Fiorentina are off to their best start since the 2015-16 campaign. That season, they finished 5th in the table, which Fiorentina fans will be thrilled to replicate this season. They come into this match with a record of 4 wins and 2 losses. They have wins against Torino, Atalanta, Genoa, and Udinese. Other than Atalanta, I think it's safe to say that those are all teams you would expect them to beat. You could even argue that early in the season, Atalanta is a team you'd expect to beat because we all know that they start slow. 
The two losses were to Roma and Inter, both finishing 3-1. Ironically, you could say that Fiorentina were the better side in each of those matches, certainly while they were playing 11v11. Against Roma, goalkeeper Bartolome Drangovski was sent off for a tackle on Tammy Abraham in the 17th minute. I thought that was a harsh call. Abraham touched the ball towards the corner flag, so I can't see how you'd call that a clear scoring chance. Fiorentina played down a man for nearly a full half before Nicolo Zaniolo picked up a second yellow, but by then the momentum had shifted. Fiorentina found the equalizer before a Jordan Vertu brace put the game away. It was a somewhat similar story against Inter. Fiorentina were the better side in the first half. They were taking the game to Inter and opened the scoring through Ricardo Sotil about midway through the first half. Credit to Inter though, they responded well with goals from Matteo Darmian and Edin Dzeko early in the second half. Then Fiorentina went down a man, this time for good reason. Nico Gonzalez was shown two yellows for dissent. The second one was for sarcastically clapping at match official Michael Fabry for the first card. You simply cannot do that, let alone in a match of that magnitude. Inter were in complete control after the sending off and put the game away through even Perisic. So Fiorentina have 12 points through 6 matches, which is good enough for 5th in the table, tied with Roma. Of course, the reason for the sudden improvement of Fiorentina is coach Vincenzo Italiano, even though he wasn't their first choice. At one point, Italiano was one of a handful of coaches linked to Napoli, along with Spalletti, De Zerbi, and Ivan Juric. Before Napoli even announced the hiring of Spalletti, Fiorentina announced the hiring of Gattuso, and I have to say, I thought that was the perfect fit for Gattuso. Between Milan and Napoli, Gattuso proved that he could right the ship with big clubs who had gone astray, and Fiorentina were way out there. Fiorentina are a big club, but expectations would not be as high as they were at Napoli and Milan, given their placement in recent history. Then there were the rumors that Gattuso was insisting on signing players who were managed by his agent, George Mendes, followed by Gattuso's abrupt departure to join Tottenham. That obviously didn't go so well for him. And Italiano was the guy that was brought in to replace Gattuso. So it was a very strange summer for Fiorentina, but it seems to have worked out really well. La Viola are playing the attractive modern football that we know Italiano likes to play. Fiorentina fans have something to cheer about, and after years of suffering under Beppe Iacchini, I think they deserve it. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. The only sure thing with Vincenzo Italiano is that he'll play a 4-3-3. Who he plays is always uncertain. He loves to rotate players, which makes their starting 11 very difficult to predict, both for the opposition team and the opposition podcaster. It's certainly an interesting philosophy. One of the benefits is that everyone is always in form, so if a player is suspended or injured, there's always another player ready to go. Likewise, substitutes are in form and ready to go because they probably played recently while being fresh at the same time. There are a couple of players who are pretty regular starters, though one of them is goalkeeper Dragovski. Another is centre-back Nikola Milenkovic, though his centre-back partner has changed regularly. Lucas Martinez Cuarta has played every other game, but he played against Udinese, which suggests that either Igor or Matija Nastasic will start as the other center back, so I'm going to go with Igor to get the start. Cristiano Biragi is the regular starter at left back, but right back is another position that changes regularly. Lorenzo Venuti was the starter for the first three rounds, but since he injured his calf against Atalanta, Alvaro Odriozola and Marco Benassi have alternated starts. That pattern would suggest that Benassi starts at this one. One of Eric Pulgar and Lucas Torreira will play as the Regista. Torreira seems to be the preferred option of late. Gaetano Castrovilli is hurt once again, though I'm not sure how serious it is. Nonetheless, we will most likely see Giacomo Bonaventura and Alfred Duncan as the two attacking midfielders. 
The front three are probably the easiest to predict. We know Dusan Vlahovic will start at striker. Nico Gonzalez returns from his red card suspension, so you have to think that he will start on the left wing. And Jose Callejon has started most matches on the right wing. Ricardo Sotil started one match and scored, but considering the opponent, I'm expecting Callejon to get the nod. As I said in part 1, I think the changes Spalletti made in the Europa League give us a good sense of who he will play against Fiorentina. I think Spalletti will line up in his usual 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3, whatever you want to call it, with David Ospina in goal. Kaladu Koulibaly and Amir Rachmani should start at centre-back. I think we'll see Mario Rui at left-back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo at right-back. Frank Zamboangisa and Fabian Ruiz should start together in the double pivot. Fabian has played a lot of games, but we have an international break coming, so I think he's still going to play. Otherwise, I might have picked Diego Demet to start. Lorenzo Insigne will start on the left wing, and I think Chucky Lozano will start on the right wing, since he's only been a substitute for the last two matches. Piotr Zielinski should start in the number 10, and Victor Osman will start at striker. So those are our starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. My first key to the match is that we need to withstand Fiorentina's attack early in the match. In her preview of the match for Keza di Totti, Chloe Beresford noted that Fiorentina have started matches at a frenetic pace, but they don't quite have the stamina yet to maintain those levels for the full 90 minutes. Their intensity tends to drop in the second half, which leaves them vulnerable to their opponents. We saw that in the Roma and the Inter match, where Fiorentina came out very strong and seemed to be dominating the play, but then they lost it in the second half. Now, as I mentioned, Fiorentina picked up a red card in each of those matches, so that obviously changes your approach. But in the Roma match, Zaniolo got his second yellow in the 52nd minute when the score was still tied 1-1. So they played nearly 40 minutes 10v10, and from that point onward, Roma won 2-0. A big part of that quick start is Italiano's high press. I'm sure Spalletti has watched the film and is expecting this approach. Now, we haven't had much time to prepare for this match given the midweek fixture against Spartak Moscow. That said, playing out of the back is an important aspect to our game, so we practice that regularly anyway. We'll have to put that training into action. That means showing for the ball, moving as a team, and passing the ball quickly. It also means using the long ball when the pass isn't on because Victor will be up there to chase it down. In fact, with that high press, we may even want to play the long ball early because we know how dangerous Victor can be in space. That's my second key to the match. We need to feed the beast. Osman is absolutely flying right now. He has 7 goals in 5 matches and he thrives against teams that give him space to play. When it comes to tactics, everything in football is give and take. And by that I mean if you want to play an attack-minded game, you necessarily must sacrifice in defense. When you think of Gasperini's Atalanta over the last few years, though lesser this year, when you try to score 5 goals a game, you will allow the opponent plenty of chances as well. The manager's job is to strike the right balance. In Gasperini's case, he reasoned that so long as Atalanta score 4 or 5 goals, it's okay if they concede 2 or 3, they're still going to win, which is all that matters. The opposite is true of a manager like Ivan Juric who tends to focus on defending first. His reasoning is if we don't concede many goals, then we can pick up a lot of points even if we don't score all that often. Italiano is definitely more on the attacking side of the spectrum, though not quite as aggressive as Gasperini. In fact, I wonder if Italiano might take a slightly less attack-minded approach to this match. His approach to the Roman Inter matches might suggest not, though neither of those matches ended particularly well. The reason I question his approach though is because of a quote Chloe had in her preview. After the Udinese match, Italiano said that Fiorentina struggled a little bit when the opponents press high up the pitch, 
so they had to introduce another defender to handle their pressure. I assume he's referring to replacing Cristiano Biragi with Alexa Terzic in that match. Biragi is more of a wing back than a left back, so when Fiorentina get forward and Biragi joins the attack, the 4-3-3 becomes a 3-4-3. Terzic, on the other hand, is a natural left back. I assume this is the change he was referring to because all the other changes were like for like swaps. So if Italiano is expecting Napoli to press high, I wonder if he starts Terzic over Biragi and takes a slightly more defensive-minded approach. Of course, if he does that, we don't need to be so concerned about the Fiorentina attack we discussed in our first key to the match. Fiorentina focused on defending for the final half an hour of the Udinese match, and while they snuffed out any of Udinese's attacks, Fiorentina also created very little in the attack themselves. If I had to guess though, I'd say Italiano will stick to his ideals, try to score a goal or two first, and then make this change around the hour mark to protect the lead. My final key to the match is, in a way, the opposite of one of my keys to the Spartak Moscow match. In that game, I said Spartak loved to attack through the middle, so we should try to push them out wide. For this match, we need to contain Fiorentina on the wings, not necessarily because they love to attack through the wings, but because Dusan Vlahovic is an absolute beast in the air. I'm sure he will be Koulibaly's assignment. The scary thing is, I don't think Vlahovic is in form yet. He has four goals on the season, but three of them have come from the penalty spot. The other one was a beautiful header against Torino. I think Mario Rui can handle Jose Callejon on the right wing, but I'm especially concerned about the left wing. Nico Gonzalez has been an excellent signing for Fiorentina, so Di Lorenzo will have his hands full. Even though Politano has started the last two games, I wouldn't be shocked if he started this one too because he is a better defender than Lozano, so Spalletti may want to start him in support of Di Lorenzo. We can't just take away the wings though, we have to defend as a team because if we push Fiorentina into the middle, then we have to worry about wily veteran Giacomo Bonaventura and a reborn Alfred Duncan. Bonaventura knows how to win a penalty so we can't afford to make that mistake. Italiano is playing Duncan as an attacking midfielder and he's doing really well in that role. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a high scoring 4-1 win for Napoli. I'll give two goals to Victor Osimhen, one to Chucky Lozano and the other to Fabian Ruiz. For Fiorentina, I'll give the goal to Dusan Vlahovic. I know that's a crazy prediction and I mean no disrespect to Fiorentina, but I'm envisioning a match similar to our first match against Atalanta last season. If we can score a goal or two in the first half, the game will become even more open and that only plays into our strengths with the pace of Osman and Lozano up top. So that will do for this preview. I hope you enjoy the match. That will also do it for this episode. If you like what you heard, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forza Napoli Pod. I'll be back next week with a guest or two to review this match, but until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Fui, eh, e lá está, e lá está.
El un te corre a pies o un te excluye Su la guarda Network.